Before I come to preach from God's Word this morning, can I bring you a building progress report? Um, Three and a half years ago, my wife and I bought a house, and the intention was we would fully um, renovate it from top to bottom, replacing the central heating, all the plumbing, uh, the bathroom, the kitchen, take all the doors and facings and skirtings off, replace all of them, basically make the whole side inside of the house completely brand new. Uh, plan was three months, um, ambitious project, but three months from start to finish, uh, jobs are good. Three and a half years on, it's not finished yet. Why? Well, before I came on staff at Charlotte Chapel, I planned to take three months off and just do the whole house. Blitz it from top to bottom and then come and settle in the pastoral ministry here. Well, the day job has been a major distraction in getting the work done. That's the biggest one, but there have been countless, hundreds of smaller distractions, some of them actually doing jobs for other people. That's got in the way of me finishing the job. And I think that poor old Nehemiah um, faced the same sort of problem, although uh, my wife yesterday said, Rodney, how long did it take Nehemiah to build the walls? (laughs) To which I said, read it for yourself. Um, But he had a lot of help. He did. But um, we come to look at a sermon today within the series in Nehemiah, Restoring the Ruins, Distractions and Diversions. Nehemiah 6, you want to have it open there again, if you will. Uh, Thanks to David for reading that uh, earlier to us. So, by way of introduction in verse 1, let's think about Nehemiah's progress report. When we first met Nehemiah in chapter 1, We find a man deeply moved uh, with compassion for the plight of Jerusalem and its occupants. The one's great city is in ruins and its people are in grave danger. The prophet himself, along with thousands of others, is in exile in Babylon. Now, with complete disregard for his own physical safety, he approaches King Arxaxerxes in chapter 2 to gain permission to return to Jerusalem to project manage an extremely ambitious building plan that would rebuild the ruins of the wall, chapters one, sorry, 2 and 3, reestablish the honor of God's people by reuniting the community and reinstating servant-hearted leadership among the priests in order that the religion that God approves of, um, reference Isaiah 58, might once again be at the center of the worshiping community in the land of promise, chapter 5. And despite all kinds of setbacks, whether personal, political, or pastoral, Nehemiah has all overcome and the job is nearly finished. Now even the most difficult of social and administrative problems haven't stood in the way of the prophet completing the task that God had called him to. And in Nehemiah 6 and verse 1, we read that such was the progress that the wall was completely finished and there were no gaps left to work on. Yet, as David was talking to the children, we've learned that although the job was nearly complete, it still lacked one thing. The doors needed to bar entry to undesirables from the outside and exit to those who had legitimate rights as residents of the city were not yet in place. Let's think about that. It's a walled city, fortified city. And without these doors in place, the city is still vulnerable to attack. And it's that vulnerability or the weakness that the enemies of Nehemiah sought to exploit. And they did it through a series of distracting and diversionary tactics. 
This is often the way that leaders of God's people are attacked. Rarely does it come as a full frontal attack with the enemy prepared to fully expose himself, irrespective of whether that enemy is a spiritual foe or whether it's a human foe manipulated by spiritual or carnal forces. And news regarding the progress of the reconstruction of the city's vulnerability uh, reached the ears of Nehemiah's opponents. They couldn't allow the work to be completed. So first of all, they devised in verses 1 through 4 a hijack plot. Now on first impressions, just reading through this, we could easily be fooled into believing that Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem had had a change of heart. Up until now, they want nothing to do with Nehemiah. Uh, they're opposing him at every juncture in his life. But here they're making an approach to meet with him. Has there been a bit of a sea change in their attitude? A shift in the way that they want to do things? Uh, are they seeking an opportunity to parley with Nehemiah and put behind them any differences and unify their forces into a coalition to govern the newly restored community life in Jerusalem? Well, uh, we may be tempted to think that. But remember, up until this point, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem have opposed everything that the Jews did. But now they offered to cooperate and help the Jews build the wall. Is their offer to meet Nehemiah in a village halfway between Jerusalem and Samaria a subtle way of saying, we're willing to meet you halfway and to reach a compromise. So come on, Nehemiah. How about it? Quote from Warren Wearsby in his little book uh, on uh, commentary on Nehemiah called Be Determined. He says, while cooperation in the Lord's work is a noble thing, leaders must take care that they cooperate with the right people at the right time for the right purpose. Otherwise, they may end up cooperating with the enemy. Satan is a master deceiver and has his servants ready to join hands with God's people so he can weaken their hands in the work. He goes on to say, loving compromise and cooperation can be good and useful if there are no moral or spiritual issues involved. Happy compromise can invigorate a marriage or strengthen a ministry. But this is compromise among people who love each other and have the same purposes in mind. If you invite the devil to join your team, expect him to change the rules and the goals and expect to be defeated. And this is the plot here in Nehemiah 6. They haven't got any hope of thwarting the building project, but they can still destroy him, or at least his reputation and credibility. We can learn three things, uh, personally and corporately as God's community, in the way that Nehemiah responded to this invitation that ultimately enabled him to survive this devilish plot. First of all, uh, notice that Nehemiah is discerning. A leader in the church must have discernment. All Christians must have discernment. But leaders particularly must have the gift of discernment. The gift of discernment is a Holy Spirit gift. It's not something that we can have necessarily need possess within ourselves. We can ask God to give us discerning gifts. The tendency is for people, especially Christians, to take things too much at face value to be too trusting. I've discovered uh, in my Christian ministry thus far an alarming degree of naivety and willingness to always believe the best in people that has led to absolute pandemonium and mayhem in the church, locally and nationally. 
Now, don't hear me wrong on this. While there are a good number, I want to believe that in the majority of people who genuinely are concerned for the honor of God's name and for the good of his people, there are others who join churches simply because they are out for themselves or at worst, they have the agenda of wolves in sheep's clothing. And their purpose for coming into church is to decimate the unity of the Spirit from within the body of Christ on earth. And we need to search our own hearts. What's our purpose for being part of the community? Are we for building up and encouraging? Or are we for pulling apart and tearing down? We can do that from a carnal nature. We can do that from a spiritual emphasis. My home church in Kirkwall can testify now because one of the ladies has become a Christian, that we had two seemingly well-meaning people come to church at one stage and participate in our community. Both were witches from a coven, sent by the devil himself to be part of our community to destroy us. And none of us knew it to begin with. And yet God the Holy Spirit worked on the lives of one of them and she became a Christian and confessed her sin. And we have no idea where the other one is just now. If you're listening to me online later on, maybe you can drop me a note and let me know. You must have discernment. Nehemiah had discernment. He saw through this devilish scheme. The people had no, these people had no interest in meeting with him except to harm him. The purpose of their invitation was entrapment. And we've got to watch out for that. Not everybody who wants to meet with us wants to meet with us for good purposes. A pastor friend of mine who had been at loggerheads with a member of his congregation for many years got an invitation to come along one day and meet with, with this person and to, to put all the bad things of the past behind them. And he turned up in this person's sitting room and was asked to sit in a particular place. And as he sits there, uh, the person who... Uh, seemingly wanted to make all things new and make amends, uh, kept on putting leading questions to him about other people in the church. It's a strange way to, to make amends and to, to cement the unity. Say, so wait a minute. This is entrapment. And he looked under the settee he was sitting on, and there was the tape recorder taken away. Somebody had brought my friend in simply to get him to say something that could be used as evidence against him to destroy him. We've got to have discernment. The Nehemiah is discerning. He's also defiant. Sorry, he's also definite. But he's defiant as well. We'll come to that. He's, he's definite concerning his priorities, first of all. You see, there are always urgent things to distract the leader from the important things. It's a real problem for the activists among us. You know how it goes. Uh, you just can't pass the opportunity to try to meet everyone's need or to help everyone in whatever the situation is. So whenever the call comes in, off we go. Yet when we look at Jesus' life, we observe an unhurried servant leader who moves and speaks according to what God the Father gives him rather than what the people expect of him. Uh, one Notable occasion is when he gets word that his good friend Lazarus is ill. And uh, as Lazarus' pastor, he really ought to go right now and see Mary and Martha in Bethany. But Jesus is about the Father's agenda, not about people's agenda. And so he tarries for four days. Lazarus dies. 
You can just imagine the pastoral fallout from that, can't you? Emails the next week. You should have been here. (laughs) But Jesus has gone according to the Father's pattern, not just being moved by what people expect of him. So he's very definite about uh, concentrating on what are his priorities. He also concentrates on his own, uh, sorry, he's concerned for his own protection. Uh, None of us in the church, irrespective of who we are, are indispensable. Yet often our pride, our desire just to please, gets in the way of self-preservation or maintaining the Lord's or the church's reputation. Just imagine for a moment that Nehemiah had gone along with this plan. He's going to meet halfway in this little village called Ono. He goes there. What's the outcome of that meeting going to be? Well, he's told it's for parley and compromise. The reality is it's going to be harm, probably death. Now, some of us, even if Nehemiah had lost his life, would have excused his inappropriate behavior on the grounds that his intentions were good or his heart was in the right place. Well, we'd be wrong because had he embarked on such a course of action, his intentions would have been misplaced. His heart, far from being in the right place, would have been out of tune with God's heart and in the modern parlance, he'd have looked a right muppet. And so can we when we don't have discernment and think about safeguarding ourselves in ministry. There are some written rules in ministry. There are some unwritten rules. And we breach them at our peril, even in terms of trying to help people. The enemy is out to get us, remember. We're not doing this passively and in a vacuum uh, with, with absolute guarantees. None of us are ever going to become victims of what Satan is setting up by way of his traps and snares. Now, it occurs to me that if the main areas of temptation, and I think they are, are money, sex, and power, then Christians, particularly those in leadership, must beware lest they can be bribed, seduced, or threatened. And the invitation to meet may be in order to bring you down by any of these foul means. The leaders must be especially aware of these threats, since they are key in ensuring the unity and integrity of the church's ministry. A friend of mine in the military is a trained sniper. Uh, his, his whole training is to enable him to go behind enemy lines, observe for as long as it takes, days, weeks, months if necessary, chains of command in the enemy's structure. And when he knows who the leaders are, He's trained as a sniper to take out the leaders. Satan uses the same strategy. Let's find out who the people who are at the heart of the leadership in the church. And if you can bring them down, take them out, the sheep scatter. That's what the enemy is trying to do here. Nehemiah is also consistent in caring for God's people. The thing that kept Nehemiah from abandoning his post was ultimately the call of God upon his life and ministry. See verse 3 there in Nehemiah 6. I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go to you? 
this might sound just <laughs> a little bit like he's being obstinate, a little bit full of pride. Warren Wearsby again. If Nehemiah allowed himself to be distracted and detoured from the work God had called him to do, where would his people go to, to for leadership? A leaderless project is an aimless project and eventually falls apart. Leaders must be good examples and stay on the job. You see, God's people are to live in the world, but we are not to live like the world. Sanballat and his friends had nothing in common with Nehemiah and the Jewish people. Um, The one lot was on that broad road that Jesus speaks of that leads to destruction. The other are on the narrow road that leads to life. And because of this, there was no basis for cooperation. It's a plea because I think that, that this is where ministry, certainly in the UK, has to go for a period of time in the church. Uh, judgment begins with the house of God, and until the church is, is healthy and fit and ready to go and do what we're supposed to do, we need to get rid of all the weaknesses and the areas of vulnerability and be strengthened in these. God's people, we as God's people, are different from the people of the world, and we must maintain our separated position. In 2 Corinthians 6, 14, and in the chapter 7, Paul says to the Corinthian church, in the midst of its pagan community, do not be yoked with unbelievers. For we are the temple of the living God. And as God has said, I will live among them and walk with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. That's the church's charter. That's the promise that the Lord gives to the church. And he goes on and makes other promises. And then in verse 18, he says, Since we have these promises, dear friends, he's addressing the Christians, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. That's what the church ought to be concerned about doing within itself as it seeks to minister evangelistically outwardly to the world. And leaders are given to the church as gifts from Christ, not so that congregations of followers dictate to them how they ought to lead them, but leaders are given so that they might exercise their leadership ministry in helping sinners find the Savior. And having found the Savior, they're to exercise their leadership in helping Christians surrender their lives completely to His Lordship, perfecting holiness or a reverence for Christ, who is head over everything to the church. The biblical mandate for every leader, husbands, fathers, mothers, wives, pastors, elders, deacons, pastor group leaders, children's workers, the biblical mandate for anyone in any form of leadership capacity at all is to prepare God's people for the works of service that God has already prepared in advance for them to do. We don't have to make these up. We can look into God's Word and see what they are. We can see what the Word says, and we need leaders to help us be equipped to do what God wants us to do. One of the weaknesses of congregational government sometimes is that leaders can kowtow to what the people want. And that church congregations can drive the leadership along in front of where they want to go. Nehemiah is not such a leader, and neither are New Testament leaders, irrespective of our church tradition or our background. 
You see, there's no basis for cooperation with the world. Nehemiah had made that very clear from the very onset of this project when he said to Sanballat in Nehemiah 2 and 20, he said it to Sanballat, uh, Tobiah and Geshem, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Period. End of the matter. Can't be changed. It's principled. Warren Wearsby again says, decisions based only on opinions might be reconsidered. But decisions based on convictions must stand unless these convictions are changed. Otherwise, decision becomes indecision. The leader who ought to be the guidepost becomes a weather vane. Brothers and sisters in Christ, just think with me for a moment of the changes in moral values in our lifetime. The world and even the church have changed dramatically in the space of my lifetime. But you know what? God hasn't. If it was wrong in the first century and it was wrong 50 years ago, it's wrong now. It's wrong now. And Nehemiah is determined there is actually a disturbing inflexibility about Nehemiah that will probably leave most of us feeling very uncomfortable, especially if we're used to getting our own way. And most of us, we, we know how to get our own way. We, we, we learned how to manipulate our parents. We've learned how to manipulate our spouses. We've learned how to, to play up in front of our bosses. We've learned how to have the right sort of tantrum at the right place at the right time, even in church sometimes. Because we're just, well, we're just wicked sinners at the heart. And we just want our own way. And if we don't get it one way, well, we'll just try other ways until we get our own way. That's, that's the heart of human nature. Well, Nehemiah is a good leader. Uh, we rarely applaud or approve of leaders that we can't influence or manipulate. It's great having a father or a leader in any kind of position that, that is absolutely fundamentally sound in what they believe, and we can't shift them. No point in talking to them. No point in having a tantrum. No point in ganging up against them, because they're just never going to be moved. And that's great if they're right. It's not so good if they're wrong. But biblically, Nehemiah is right on the button. He's a pretty determined leader. He says no four times, despite the forceful insistence of his opponents. Verse 4. Raymond Brown, in his commentary on Nehemiah, Message of Nehemiah, published by IVP, says, It is one thing to have a conviction. It is quite another to stick by it. Nehemiah refused to be manipulated. Once he had discerned the danger and expressed his response, nothing would move him. Both church and society in a modern world need people with that same uncompromising determination to honor God and remain true to their principles however persistent the calumny or however great the cost. No matter what's said about them or done against them, we need leaders who will stand their ground and stand their ground and stand their ground. Oh, four times, and stand their ground. The leader's time and talent can be hijacked 
by the unrealistic pressure to meet everyone's need, or by the compromise and tolerance with or to the changing moral attitudes in society, just as easily as it can if it was a planned group of people were determined to cause him personal harm. Notice that when they cannot get Nehemiah to conform to their demands, where they would have physically harmed him, they typically go after his reputation instead. And so in verses 5 through 9, we have a smear campaign. Nothing new under the sun, is there? If you've read your press recently, uh, you'll know that it's a live issue, even in government today. Having failed to lure Nehemiah to the plain of Ono by seemingly fair means, Sanballat and his henchmen revert to slightly more overtly foul means. They send a fifth invitation. It's the same invitation, but this time it's accompanied by an open letter detailing a rather pathetic, fabricated story intended to serve as the agenda for the purpose conference. Nehemiah, you have to meet with us now because, and the letter explained why. Man, do they never give up? Like a dog with a bone, aren't they? No leader is ever above criticism. Any more than non-leaders in the church is above criticism. But you know, no one is deserving of slander or even unconstructive criticism. This open letter is so untypical of the culture and the, mailing, the postal mailing, mailing practice of the day. In Nehemiah's day, if you sent a letter to someone, the information in it was confidentially copyrighted to the sender and the recipient. Had Sanballat and co. its intentions been honorable, then such a matter would have been kept strictly private. If the rumors were true, they would have gone to him personally. They would not have sent it in an open letter that could be read by all and sundry. This is gossiping, and it's intentional gossiping to destroy the reputation of God's man. The letter is intended to smear the reputation of God's man and to reinstate some form of authority to the wannabes. It's incredibly subtle and devilishly cunning. And again, to the undiscerning, it could be easily appear as a, a kind letter, warning Nehemiah of impending danger and problems. But notice the age-old chestnut in the introduction to the letter. It is reported. I, I believe it to be the equivalence of several people have said or a significant number of people have shared with me persuasive tactics still favored by opponents of progress in the church today. It is reported among the nations, the letter begins, and Geshem says it's true. Oh, well, if Geshem says it's true, then it must be true, mustn't it? No, because Nehemiah isn't plotting a revolt. He has no designs on being a king, and he certainly hasn't commissioned any hireling prophets to go heralding his intentions around the streets of Jerusalem. Do you know what? This sort of stuff can really weary a leader in well-doing. So how does Nehemiah respond to this challenge? Is it now time to down tools and head off and defend this reputation? Well, after all, if it's reported and Geshem says it's true and a significant number of people have shared with me their concerns about it, we've got to do something about it, haven't we? No. 
You see, again, this has the hallmarks of distraction and diversion written all over it. Faced with such an accusation, Nehemiah simply corrects the facts, verse 8, and leaves the defense of his reputation to God, verse 9. And that's all you and I can do. It's all we can ever do if we face a similar situation. You see, however painful these attacks are, there is actually nothing we can do about them. Nothing. People are entirely free to speak of us however they want. And there is nothing we can do about it. But there is always something that we can learn from them. You see, a smear campaign or unjust criticism can teach us something about ourselves. Even though 95% of what we may be accused of is absolute drivel, we are wise if we allow God to sift our hearts over the 5% that may just have the tiniest slither of truth to it. You see, none of us are perfect, not even leaders. And that includes our favorite ones and the godliest ones too. We are all men with feet of clay. Some of us have clay extending much higher than the feet. Everyone in ministry, particularly leaders who don't know and openly recognize their weaknesses and their flaws, are actually dangerous people. If you're involved in leadership and you don't know what your weaknesses are, you're a dangerous person. Do you know why you're dangerous? Because the enemy knows what your weaknesses are. And he will be exploiting them if he's not already. He has an agenda to destroy you and to harm the lives of those that you have influence over. So they can teach us something about ourselves. If you've, never, if you've been accused of something unjustly and you can't learn from it, then you're probably unteachable. Please do not waste the pain of false accusation. God can use it to transform you. It can also teach us something about others. I kind of weighed this up in my heart pretty heavily this week, and I'm going to stand by what I'm about to say. The worst form of hurt that we can experience, I think, is betrayal. If someone outside the church offends or betrays us, if it's bad enough. But when a fellow member of the covenant community turns against us, then the pain is all the more excruciatingly painful and all the more difficult to cope with. Hear the psalmist again in Psalm 55, verses 12 through 14. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were raising himself against me, I could hide from him. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I used, I once enjoyed sweet fellowship as we walked with the throng at the house of God. Then in verse 20, my companion attacks his friends. He violates his covenant. His speech is as smooth as butter, yet war is in his heart. His words are more soothing than oil, yet they are drawn swords. Sore stuff, isn't it? If it's happened to you, it's really wicked if you're doing it to someone else. Unjust criticism, however, can teach us about being careful in regard how we trust others and simply take them at face value. I repeat myself, but many woes in the church could have been prevented 
Peter's particularly had had a healthier cynicism in regard to people and proposals. They can also teach us something about God, and surely that's the most important thing, isn't it? When King David faced the smear campaign from a fellow Jew, he discovered through the emotional pain of it all that God was his refuge, his shield, his judge, Psalm 7. And since nothing ever goes past God, David learned to entrust the evaluation of his own personal actions for which he was being criticized and the vindication of his character over which he could do nothing. He learned to trust his reputation to the one who judges justly. Following the example of Jesus, where Peter writes in his first letter, chapter 2, 23, he says, of Jesus, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. Did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Wow. That's real strength. It's not weakness, but it is meekness. And meekness isn't weakness. Meekness is strength under control. We need to be much more concerned about what heaven knows about us than what people say about us. We may feel pressurized to defend our reputations. Can I ask you, what reputation? What reputation do you or I have? We're sinners. The best we can do is like filthy rags in the sight of a holy God. Why would you want to defend that? Seriously. What reputation do you have? Jesus made himself of no reputation in order that he could come to us who before God had no reputation. And so the reputation that Jesus has in the Father's eyes is yours and mine. Heaven gets pretty stoked when it thinks about who we are. The writer to the Hebrews says that the man Jesus Christ stands and names each one of us in the presence of the brothers in heaven and says, I'm not ashamed of them. They belong to me. They're one of me. They're one of mine. So come on, earth. Have your best, short. Heaven says, I belong to him. The attempt to divert Nehemiah from this task, from his task, also fails at this point. So his enemies turn the heat up significantly to finally a menacing threat in verses 10 through 13. Now, you see, had the opposition stopped at the first two attempts, then these people may still have had a future. But what they did next crossed the line and took them a step too far, even beyond Nehemiah's authority and ability to help them. It's a menacing threat, first of all, of a faceless opponent. Shehemiah, who was a prophet for hire, um, entertained Nehemiah in his home. Now, we can't determine the circumstances that caused him to be housebound, but we do know that he claimed to speak with the authority of God. We can also very quickly discern that he was a false prophet. Again, it appears on the surface that this man is acting out of concern for Nehemiah. He may have indicated that he too was under threat, uh, so he suggests that they both retreat to the sanctuary of the temple and get themselves beyond the reach of their assassins. Uh, Just listen to the language again. It, It rings alarm bells for us, or it ought to. He warned Nehemiah of some men who were coming to kill him. 
Oh, scary. And they're coming at night. Oh, really scary. So who are these guys? Who's coming to kill me? Do they have names? Would Nehemiah recognize them? No. Because they're like the nameless originators of the reports in verse 6. They don't exist. And even if they did exist, well, just because somebody's going to kill you, we're not really to be afraid of that as Christians. Jesus says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's the faceless opponent. Do you know, if people really need to have something said or expressed, they have to have a name, they have to have a face. It's one of the difficulties in church leadership when someone comes and says, uh, a number of people have shared with me. Who are the people? Oh, I can't tell you. It's confidential. Well, they don't exist then. Oh, no, they do. They've spoken to me. Well, they've got to speak to everybody. There's a problem in the church. You can't hide behind facelessness or namelessness and get someone else to do your bidding. You've got to bring it out into the open where it can be aired and dealt with appropriately. It's a menacing threat by a false prophet. Do you know, worse than the many people are saying form of manipulation, the God has told me one is much more difficult to contend with. Speaking lies and being deceitful from a carnal perspective is bad enough. But when a person spiritualizes what they're saying, then the malevolence factor gets cranked up just about as far as it can go. You see, the source of all untruthful and deceptive spiritual ease is the devil himself. And when a prophet or a prophetess is in the midst of the church saying something that is false, it's the devil who's behind it. And we need to recognize that for what it is. Nehemiah does what all good leaders do when faced with the thus saith the Lord confrontational challenge. He tests it against Scripture. And on this occasion, he finds it truly wanting. Isaiah 8 and verse 20 tells us how to weigh this stuff up. To the law and to the testimony, it says. And if they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Uh, we're coming tonight in our Timothy series to begin to see that even in the church, people can believe things that are taught by demon spirits. They won't say, excuse me, I'm a demon, I'm a devil, I think you ought to obey this. They will say it in the guise of, thus saith the Lord. This sounds like scripture. This sounds like a good idea. And the church will be drawn into thinking that it is a good idea. We need to be discerning. A menacing threat. Uh, sorry, the message here is false and so is the messenger. John also warns his readers to be equally discerning in 1 John 4 and 1. Dear friends, in the age of the church, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And this menacing threat comes from these sources, but comes to a fearless leader. Nehemiah's response reveals his commitment to the call of God and to the task given to him to lead in verse 11. Should such a man like me run away, that would be dereliction of duty. 
His response also reveals his command to personal holiness. Second part of verse 11. Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life, I will not go. And he won't go, as we learned in the children's talk, because to do so would be a sin against God and to violate his commands. Only priests were allowed access to the temple, and only then under strictly observed terms and conditions. Nehemiah was not a priest, but then neither was his life in danger. Although, had he entered the temple, then the prophecy would actually have borne some credence, and Nehemiah would have been totally discredited. Three challenges. Conclusion, how does Nehemiah respond? Well, look at this protection strategy in verse 14. I don't know about you, I can feel sorry for Nehemiah. Big time. Maybe you can identify with him. All you want to do is to be faithful to the task that God has given you, and yet at every turn, obstacle, more obstacles, and still more obstacles. Verse 14 seems to indicate that there's actually a conspiracy among the prophets, certainly involving a prophetess called Noadiah. No matter how strong the leader, how discerning, how definite, how determined he may be, this stuff can get to you eventually. Nag, nag, nag. Drip, drip, drip. It just drains your strength and eats away at your soul. And of course, that's exactly what it's intended to do. And in the face of such unjust opposition, even mature and experienced leaders can lose the will to fight on and remain faithful to their assigned task. But Nehemiah turns the entire issue over to God in prayer, asking, basically, I'm paraphrasing here, God, you sort them out. You sort them out. Some years ago, a friend of mine was slated in the National Evangelical Press. Twelve other pastors ganged up against them and wrote just completely untrue stuff very hurtful, harmed his family and his church. And one night in his study, he sat down to reply to the twelve. And he wrote each of them a letter, pointing out their faults, failings, and misdemeanors. Sealed all the envelopes, put stamps on them. They were all addressed, ready to go in the mail. And as he went out to go to the post box, thank goodness it was before the days of email, because he might just have clicked send and not got it back. But just as he was to leave his study... He noticed an open fire. And the spirit said, go and post them then. And he went, no, I want to have my say. I want to get back at these guys that have hurt me and my family. And the spirit said, just put them in the fire. and Leave the rest to me. Twelve well-known church leaders. Within 18 months, six of them are dead. Be warned if you speak against the Lord's anointed. If you're the Lord's anointed, let God do the judging. You can do nothing about it. So what can we learn from this? Well, those who do God's bidding will face opposition. Matthew 10, 17 through 22. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils, flog you in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you that's speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. Yippee! (laughs) 
That's our calling in the world. Men will hate us because of Christ. Guaranteed. But those who face opposition can look to God for help. Hebrews 12. Since, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. The gospel that makes us wise unto salvation. Lord, thank you that you've not left us um, to figure this stuff out for ourselves. You've given your word and your Holy Spirit to interpret it to our hearts. Father, that's what we ask today, that any of us who are struggling against the face of opposition and oppression, that today will be a joyous day as we turn these things over and the people behind them to your judgment. Lord, forgive us for our sin. Restore us, renew us, heal us. Bring us pardon. Help us to be people who forgive others when they wrong us. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.